Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Happy New Year to you all. My usual companion, Thea Lenarduzzi, is in Italy, where I believe she also has tracts of land. And I'm joined today instead by someone who needs no introduction. So I won't give her one. Just kidding, it's none other than the arts editor of the TLS, former indie pop star, quondam Disney functionary, furious shunner of the actual words written in the paper, Lucy Dallas. Hello Lucy, Happy New Year to you. Hello, thank you, Happy New Year. Um, as usual, I'm going to quibble with the first two and deny the, the, the last yeah. charge. Well, th- th- you did work for Disney. Functionary is not quite the word, well, I don't think. You were a singer. Well, it, yeah, it, it, I was it, a singer, it, I was a talent. Talent. <laughs> I wish I immediately wish I hadn't said that. Yeah, okay. Next time you're on, I will call you Quandam Disney Talent. No, don't call me anything. Does the word Quandam even work? Ish. It's right, but it's pretentious. Anyway, uh, Lucy, welcome. We've got a really interesting show ahead of us. Remember, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section, and you can get six issues for £6. And please do review us on iTunes. The more reviews we get, apparently, the more our overlords at Apple will do to make us visible. That's how this... Stuff apparently works. Coming up on the show today, we will talk to Patricia Williams, who has written the first lead essay of the year in the TLS. It is on the subject of black girls and women in America, how their voices are silenced, their identities turned into cliché and their narratives distorted. It is a brilliant piece of writing, well worthy of your time. And we'll also hear from the winner of the TLS's very own Mick Imler Poetry Prize, Catherine Lewis, who will read her poem, Memory of an Ocean. In 1964, the American artist Norman Rockwell produced a painting called The Problem We All Live With. It shows a girl called Ruby Bridges heading off to an all-white school in New Orleans during the attempt in 1960 to enforce educational desegregation. We see the image from the position of the angry white protesters, the black girl, dignified and determined and somehow pristine, flanked by the US Marshals necessary to guarantee her safety. The painting represents a historic moment, the struggles of a nascent movement. 
When looking at it now, we may feel invited to reflect on its very historicity, a movement that ended with integration, with progress achieved. And yet we shouldn't be so sanguine. Patricia Williams tells us in her brilliant essay this week that integration remains a troubling issue. American schools are more segregated today than they were during the civil rights movement. According to Williams, we all still live with the problem of gender. She says this, among the voices most insistently suppressed, written off and written out are those of black women and girls. African-American girls are viewed as less innocent than their white peers, a bias that begins when they are as young as five years old. They are therefore perceived to warrant less patience, protection and support, and as a result are less mentored, more harshly disciplined and more frequently criminalised. Indeed, while racist attitudes tend to infantilise black adults, a process of adultification takes place in regard to black children, especially girls who are seen to be prematurely knowledgeable about a range of adult topics, especially sex. Black women are conceived too regularly in unflattering stereotypes that date back to antebellum prejudices, the Jezebel, the Mammy, or the Sassy Ballbuster, or the Lying Girl. Williams notes that tropes span lifetimes, they are ubiquitous and malleable, and in the end they can be destructive as young people are captured and captioned as the object of others' beliefs. To illustrate Patricia Williams' piece, we've chosen to update that powerful image by Norman Rockwell as the cover of the TLS that now illustrates what has changed since 1960. But more importantly, what remains the same, the young black girl, dignified and determined, still subject to an angry and unheeding stare. And Patricia Williams, I'm delighted to say, is on the line to discuss her piece and the ideas in it further. Patricia, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, let's start, I suppose, with a big question. Why is it that black girls generally are written out of the narrative of African-American struggles? Why are their voices somehow not always listened to? Well, I think there are a combination of features. Why are women's voices, <laughs> to begin with, written out of so many conversations? Uh, we live in a hashtag Me Too moment, and even that discussion has largely been uh, skewed toward more dominant voices, famous voices, celebrity voices, and the question of the intersection of gender and race is a vexed one in every context. But certainly the question of black women combined with femininity, the question of whether one is appealing in an almost somatic sense, I think is at the root of some of this. That goes back, I think, to the question of slavery and the sexualization of black women's bodies, black children's bodies. And you, you think that narrative persists from slavery to now? You, that incredible study you I, I, cite that says that black girls are somehow seen as less innocent. Yes, not just less innocent, but sexualized from the time they are five years old. I think our public attention is very much fixed on the deplorable state of black boys, um, young black men, but particularly black children, black boys, because they are the objects frequently of violence or associated with various forms of publicly perceived threat. And, and in that comparative sense, black girls are rendered invisible or less urgently in need of public attention. And uh, I think their voices, therefore, their circumstances, um, the very dire statistics about their life chances becomes overlooked. How does this happen, Patricia, that, that you, know, you talk about this, what amounts to, to this prejudice narrative that goes back hundreds of years? I just wonder, how does that become transmitted in a culture over a period of time where, by 
progress doesn't seem to make any difference, but a black girl is seen as a sexualized thing 200 years ago and is seen as a sexualized thing now. I think it's not just 200 years ago. It was written so profoundly into not just our law, but the inability to bring within the discipline of policing the actions of people who committed violence against black girls and against black women. And that is a feature of our law that lasted as a feature of law until through the Jim Crow period. So we're talking until the 1960s. That's what I think is missing from the an analysis that says that that was true 200 years ago, but it shouldn't be true today. It's that this has been a, you used the word malleable, I think I used the word in the piece as well, that it has transformed from black women, black bodies being property, which were completely at the disposal, the use, they were inventory, they were things. The reason we use the word chattel slavery is that they were analogous to cattle. Um, They were not full human beings. They were not human. And therefore, their presence on plantations or in domestic settings was for the propagation of more inventory. You know, when when (laughs) the man who was my great-great-grandfather, who was a white owner, of my great-great-grandfather, impregnated her at the age of somewhere between 11 and 12 years old, we all learned, even until very recently within my family, to think of him as the master and not my great-great-grandfather. So the very vocabulary of family has been written out of these acts of violence, these acts of incest, these acts of rape, and instead it was understood as a commercial relationship or one of arm's length, one of distance which enabled not just the buying and selling, but again, even as a matter of an historical memory, one that writes out the violence against real human bodies, against women's bodies. And the legacy of that is simply not, I think, fully part of the traumatic recall that we perhaps need to have for the reconciliation that history demands. You mentioned this misappropriation of black female bodies in public. You draw a contrast, I think, which is very telling between white feminism, which is about gaining equality in public, and black feminism is about trying to maintain privacy from public intrusion. And there is a critical distinction there, is there? Yes, I think that there has been... It's a vexed point. I mean, and I don't mean to overstate the, 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 the distinction, but because there were traditions involved in anti-miscegenation laws in Jim Crow in which... Uh, and as well as in the parallel movement for uh, Jane Crow or the segregation of women, the deprivation of women's rights, white women were confined to a domestic sphere, whereas at the same historical moment, black women were out working in the public, available for a variety of exposure and public exposures um, that white women were not. And so there was... an interesting historical reflection when Barack Obama was elected president and our and, and Michelle Obama became our first black first lady, that black women have traditionally worked. They have been out in the workplace or even in domestic spheres, they are working for other people. They are not in their own homes. And the public image of a woman who was addressed as lady and the first lady was really quite significant. Patricia, can I ask as well, with this idea that the black women's bodies are sort of almost public property or not treated, as you say, things that are and would be seen as crimes if they were against white people, 
are not seen as crimes and were not seen in the justice system as crimes until as recently as the 1960s. Yes, yes, and frequently sexual. I think the examples I gave are, are the kinds of cavity searches in public on the sides of roads, vaginal searches, um, the fact that you can actually get a warrant for vaginal searches in Texas for uh, traffic stops. And is that is that's that a the case now? Yes, yes, that's, that's, that's a law in Texas presently. And, and actually the bill in Texas was was drawn up after uh, such a search was done without a warrant and there were complaints. And so now it has been written to accord, I suppose, more with something like due process. But I, I am still really quite shocked that you can seek a warrant in the case of a traffic stop. <laughs> yeah. So, so the point is that that happened and there was an outcry and the result of the outcry yeah. was not that the, the the practice was stopped but that it was in fact encoded in law and the people uh, to whom this happens most often are black women yes how much do you feel patricia that there is that this prejudice towards black women has been institutionalized into the the justice system in the states how much are black women disproportionately generally speaking mistreated by the justice system well, I think the statistics speak for themselves, and race is a skewing factor in every statistic having to do with the Justice Department, both at the federal and state level, varying from state to state, but there are very few places in the United States where that is not the case. Institutionalized is a complicated word because I, I think that um, on the one hand, our laws in the wake of the civil rights movement are nominally, at any rate, colorblind, but policing practices and not just policing practices, it's a cultural perspective, it's a cultural way of seeing that affects not just white people, not just black people, not just all other groups in between. I think that the dominance of where our fear runs um, is so ingrained in our media, in our news, in our books, in our literature. And all of that is generated by how segregated a culture we are. Residential segregation leads to educational segregation, leads to different policing practices in different communities, leads to employment opportunity and its differentials. So I think that those are the institutional mountains that we are still dealing with. It's, 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 a, it's a very intractable legacy, and it's probably not right to say that it's simply all about policing. But uh, the fear and the, uh, the sense of needing in internal walls, well before we get to the, the question of immigrant walls, these internal barriers of de facto segregation, I think are, are very, very uh, powerful. I was thinking while you were um, saying that, Patricia, about the um, statistics that you give as well about black and non-black intermarriage. I mean, intermarriage is probably the end result of segregation at every level from birth to death. <laughs> so it's not, it's not a surprising statistic when one thinks of how few white members of American society have a black neighbor. When one thinks of how non-integrated primary schools are, high schools are, colleges where, or employment settings where people meet and fall in love. So it's not surprising that I think the statistic I gave in the, in the piece is that 8.5% of married black men and only 3.9% of married black women have a white spouse. And that's in comparison to British rates, I think 48% of black Caribbean men and 34% of black Caribbean women are in couples with partners 
of a different ethnic group. There's an interesting parallel here that occurs to me because uh, I've been reading about this. The the better parallel, the more accurate parallel to Britain is with uh, people from Islamic communities because uh, yeah. in, in Britain there is very little uh, mixing between Islamic communities and non-Islamic communities. I, I would I would hesitate to make that parallel. I think that I think that there are too many historical differences, and the main one that I would point to is that African Americans and those deemed whites, even though they, they include more recent uh, immigrants than since the times of slavery, um, have been living side by side in the same country for four hundred years, and th- this is a marriage rate. The marriage rate does not include the rate of procreation. And that's really the problem. I mean, if you look at African Americans in the United States, they do not look like our slave ancestors who came straight off the boat from West Africa. And that's because there has been a profound amount of mixing. And I believe I once saw statistics, this is not in the piece, so I'm talking a little bit off my head, but I think it's almost two thirds of anybody who's been in the United States for over two generations has a near African American ancestor, even if they identify as white. All of Sally Hemings's children, but one, Sally Hemings was the enslaved woman, yes, who bore Thomas Jefferson, yes, six children, four of whom survived into adulthood. Annette Gordon-Reed is an historian at Harvard who wrote a book tracking um, the descendants of those children. They all passed um, and are living, and some of them were quite surprised to find out that they had an African-American ancestor. But, you know, with the increased prevalence of things like DNA testing, many people are, are, are fairly surprised by this. But the, the, the degree to which, after the Civil War, those who could, quote, passed, left the race, so to speak, is, is in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and now probably proliferates into the millions of, of American population. And so it's, 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 it's not just that black women are living in public. I think that the relation with the historic relation of the propagation of slave populations through rape by their white owners, by their white male owners, is a public secret. Um, so you have senators like Strom Thurmond, who in the 1950s had a daughter by the family black maid um, when she was 16. He denied that relation until, uh, and the family denied it until after his death. But in fact, during her lifetime, he had paid for her expenses, paid for that child's college education. Um, Everybody in the black community knew it, but as a matter of his presence in the Senate, as an honorable, upstanding member of the Senate, it was completely denied until well after his death. And Strom Thurmond was somebody who argued segregation now, segregation forever. (laughs) Um, He was a strong segregationist. And that kind of public secret of the deep hypocrisy of untouchability, from one side, but complete accessibility <laughs> from the other is is part of that gender, that deeply gendered inequality. You refer in the piece very strikingly to Trump visiting Mobile, Alabama back in December, where he's met by maids in antebellum regalia, one of whom was, was, was black, in an image that disconcerted you, I think it's fair to say. Yes, yes. I mean, it's the Alabama trail maids, uh, is a tradition in the city of Mobile, and it chooses young high school uh, women, young girls um, who are high school seniors, and it's considered an honor. And it's been in that it's a tradition since 1950s uh, of greeting visitors to the city, but they dress in antebellum outfits that are 
gowns that are straight out of Gone with the Wind. They're extra- and- We've got a picture in the paper. They're extraordinary things. They're all in pastel shades and flouncing yeah. and filled yes. with frills. Yes. It's, it's frippery to the uh, to, to the nth degree. Not um, the kind of costume that you. It's not the kind of clothes that you could do anything in either. No, no, no. It, but it is. It really is about a, a, a moment in which women were corseted and bound. But it, it, it is. A, it's a tradition of white uh, fashion. It's a white fashion statement of antebellum women in the South. It's, it's, it's very specific as to place and to time. And at that time, white women needed black slave women to lace up those corsets as tightly as they could. I mean, there are novels about those dresses. And to see a black trail maid dressed like that is not just ahistorical. It strikes me as being the kind of, oh, we're going to, it's, it's revisionist in a way, that now we have a black face in here, so all is well. And the image that graced the front pages of the New York Times and virtually every newspaper in the country when the trail maids greeted Trump as he stepped off his plane, there was a lot of pushback saying, well, don't you want to be included? But to be included in that particular kind of historical narrative is a way of rewriting history that is that obliterates the reality of that, as well as inscribes a kind of uh, femininity that is painful to look at. Yes, the, the, the idea is that you're supposed to be, maybe black women are supposed to be somehow grateful because, look, now they're allowed, you're allowed in the picture, you're allowed to wear the dresses, you're allowed to greet people, whereas in fact you don't want to be, what you need is the truth of what was happening behind those costumes, and then for that not to be celebrated. And the longer story of that picture was that Donald Trump stepped off that plane and uh, into Alabama, which is also the site of several of his subsequent visits uh, to support the candidacy of Roy Moore. Roy Moore was alleged, and I, I underscore alleged, of having uh, sexually touched a 14-year-old girl, not a black girl, but a, a white girl. And his immediate response to allegations of his having, uh, in his 30s, um, attempted to court or to approach um, inappropriately young teenagers, underage teenagers, was, well, I asked their mothers. To me, that was a very interesting reiteration of a kind of history that goes back to antebellum days, which is that the United States also has one of the highest rates of child marriage in the industrialized world. And, and that, goes, that, that tends to be fairly regional. It tends to be in the South. It tends to be a feature of rural settings, also of poor settings, but really growing out of a plantation system in which I think the tradition of sexualizing very young girls began with slave girls and metastasized to that of young, poor white girls as well. And that is something that you see in sort of the unfortunate stereotypes of poor whites in the United States. For example, the Jerry Lee Lewis, the rock and roll singer Jerry Lee Lewis, who married his 13-year-old cousin. Um, It was outrageous back in the 1950s. It is outrageous now. Asking one's mother is no excuse. (laughs) But it was astounding that, that, that somebody in this day and age, that is to say a senatorial candidate, could come back with the repost that, uh, well, I asked her mother. Um, that's a very ancient part, I think, of this legacy of our slave past. Well, I think, and, and maybe that's the best way to leave on this question for you, Patricia. What, what now? What next? That You end the piece with a question. Is there a path to vivacity from being captured and captioned as the object of others? 
beliefs. We're talking about atavism here, the, the horrible past reasserting itself continually in the present. Do you hold out any hope for the future, therefore? I am a creature of hope. I, I think that uh, my great-great-grandmother's legacy has, is born of nothing if not hope. I, I, I do feel that the task for us all, black, white, men, women, as a global matter right now is to make visible the invisible. The, I, I'm thinking in particular of things like the movement hashtag Black Lives Matter, which is so associated with black men, which was actually founded by three black women. And the focus of my piece was really about the question of citizenship and black women's citizenship and all the ways in which everything we've been talking about is a way of making invisible their appeals for due process and for the full franchise um, of American citizenship. And that's a quest for everyone in the United States, for everyone in the United States. Somebody just sent me this wonderful poem by Seshlav Milosh, uh, the Polish poet, called Hope. And, he, and it says that hope is with you when you believe the earth is not a dream, but living flesh, that sight, touch, and hearing do not lie, that all things you have ever seen here are like a garden looked at from a gate. You cannot enter, but you're sure it's there. And that's the way I feel. I am sure <laughs> that the remediation, the great American original sin, <laughs> is there. You know, we may be standing at a gate. We can't enter just yet, but we're sure it's there. Patricia Williams, let's leave it there on that lovely image. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a nice way of putting it. Oh, the, brilliant, yeah. The striking, the striking thing from talking to Patricia, though, is that, I mean, we have huge problems in this country, obviously. It's easy to forget just how different parts of America are and remain. You know, there's bits we didn't talk about, but, you know, these, these kids being paddled in American schools for being too wearing too many revealing clothes you, you have and that's that's now isn't it that's now yeah. you have you yeah. know as she says uh, the encoding of in the law of the right to to search internally women for traffic which is just stories. extraordinary yeah, there was also we didn't get a chance to talk about it but the absolute vilification of rachel jantel yeah. who was the um the the friend to, of trayvon martin on who, the phone to him yeah. when he was murdered and the way that she was portrayed and absolutely ridiculed and uh, sort of pilloried when when she was giving her evidence in the court she was just um you know a friend of his who was trying to say what happened and who was extremely upset at, at the whole thing and couldn't understand the the attitudes towards her i think and the, and the line is it from from a journalist saying it was it came easy for the white male defense attorney to treat her as the one who needed to be regulated not the you know, she she became absolutely she was the person who she became the problem yeah and it, whereas in fact she was the person who was actually saying what had happened it's a depressing i mean i do urge people to 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 read the piece having listened to to patricia it's sad, it's sad in lots of respects but maybe we should listen to us and then cling on to that little moment at the end where Patricia Williams extends some I think it's also but I mean, hope for hope. Yes, but it's also um, perhaps rather than thinking about it as sad, we should think about it as energising yeah. in the terms of we need to talk about it. We do need to talk about it. Anyway, there it is. That was Patricia Williams and do read the piece The Problem We All Still Live With. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last year, the TLS revived its poetry composition in memory of our late poetry editor, Mick Imlar. Around 1,500 people entered, submitting about 4,000 poems. Our judging panel, TLS deputy editor Alan Jenkins, himself a poet, together with poets A.E. Stallings and Andrew Motion, selected a winner whose poem was published in the paper's Christmas double issue. Catherine Lewis took the prize of £3,000 for her poem, Memory of an Ocean. The judges praised it as graceful and economical, saying how it spoke to them quietly but insistently of the sadness underlying its precision and lucidity, a powerful, even sinister suggestion of irrevocable loss. It is a wonderful thing, and I'm delighted to say Catherine Lewis joins Lucy and me on the line now. Catherine, welcome to you, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was very exciting. First of all, tell us a bit about yourself. How does poetry fit into your life? Well, I've always written it uh, ever since I was about 10 years old. Is, is it something you do as a sideline? Is it how, how does it fit in now? Partly a sideline. I've done other things too, but uh, that's been one of the things I've kind of kept an eye on all, all for a long time. And what's the inspiration behind this particular poem we're about to hear? A friend and I uh, used to go to a beach on the Atlantic Ocean and um, we'd bury each other in the sand for fun. And I just started out writing a tribute kind of a poem and a tribute to her and um, then it took a different direction it took several different directions <laughs> as it went along well let's let's hear it then here is the 2017 tls mick imla poetry prize winner memory of an ocean read by its author Catherine lewis memory of an ocean between the croquet games and the slanted parasols we buried one another out of the famous weather. Still as dry weeds we lay. They called and called our names all afternoon. Remember? Someone thought we'd drowned and looked among the waves, but we were weightless then and molded in our graves, our eyelids turned to amber. You know we were never found. They gave our toys away and dusted down the walls. 
I guess it was more the day, the brilliant light and air that carried us away. A childhood ended when we were not ourselves again. Catherine, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you. It's very good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're going to do this again. We're going to make it the annual Mick Imler Poetry Prize. Mm, I think it's I think it's really great that we've started it again. And, and clearly there's a very high high level of works coming in for it. I think all the shortlists were all American, interestingly. So next year, mm. the poets of this island <laughs> need to be inspired to, to do more. But it's a, it's a lovely poem. If you want to, if you haven't seen the, the shortlist, it is available online now. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Catherine Lewis there and Patricia Williams. My thanks go to Lucy Dallas. Thank you. Sorry. No, I'm I, thanking I you. Oh, th- uh, you're, you're welcome. welcome. You're yeah. welcome. Well, that's, you, that's what I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Let's thank each other. Thank you for uh, having me. It's been lovely as ever. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's TLS, which includes an extract from John McGregor's brilliant prequel to Reservoir 13, The Reservoir Tapes, as well as a whole assortment of other goodies. Next week, we shall consider the perennial problem of the Middle East through a variety of different prisms. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.